Hello and welcome to today's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today I will conduct a conversation with a conductor, orchestrator and composer who has conducted all of the UK's top orchestras as well as many other ensembles worldwide. Perhaps, more impressively, he has worked on over 200 movies, including the latest James Bond movie, No Time to Die. It is a great pleasure to welcome Matt Dunkley. Matt, really good to speak with you today. Uh, hi, Mike. It's, uh, it's great to speak to you too. What have you been doing during lockdown? Are you like a few of us, um, sort of shying away from learning any scores, or are you busy composing and arranging? Um, yeah, it's been a bit. I mean, I've done. I've had a, a few projects. There's, um, I, I actually did a, a film. So, you know, various parts of Europe seem to have opened up before us for various political reasons that let's not get into in this podcast but um so yeah I, I actually recorded a film uh, a few weeks back in uh, that was recording in belgium which they we, we did remotely so um i did all the i did all the arranging here and then uh, uh got my copyist to you know produce the parts and they printed them all out there and then i, I just i listened into the whole thing online which was it was so seamless i think i never actually need to leave my house again it was great <laughs> So I'll be doing that, and um, I'm um, I'm just about starting writing a, a musical for um, for China next year. So um, that's been kind of keep, keeping me busy as well. So yeah, I've actually you know had, had bits and bobs. Obviously, not been able to go up to the studio and, and conduct or things like that. And, a, and an awful lot of projects have, have been postponed and pushed back. So it, it's been a bit of a strange time. You know, but um, I've, I've kept myself busy. Can you tell us? how music first came into your life what were your earliest musical experiences um yeah i can remember really clearly actually i um i remember going to i, I was brought up in croydon and i remember going to the fairfield halls and they used to do this these saturday morning uh children's orchestral concerts um conducted by arthur davidson who uh <laughs> i ended up working with later on uh, <laughs> when i was but um, at the time, yeah, he, he used to conduct like the RPO and stuff like that. And these Saturday morning concerts, like the um, Robert Meyer ones they used to do at, um, at the Festival Hall. Yeah. And um, yeah, I remember going, uh, our, we had a really good um, uh, junior school music teacher called Mrs. Bird. And she took a group of us to, to one of these Saturday morning concerts. And I just remember being um, transfixed by it, really. We hadn't. You know, my parents were, weren't musical, and there wasn't there wasn't much. Well, there wasn't any orchestral music in the in the house. I don't think I'm trying to remember what what albums we had. I think there was like a there was a Herb Alpert, Tijuana Brass, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, sort of soundtrack from Fiddler on the Roof, and that was about it. So um, yeah, I went and I, and you know they played a sort of you know young person's guide to the orchestra and bits and bobs from various. Uh, things as these kids concerts do but I was totally transfixed by the the brass section in particular and the trumpets yeah. and um, I came home from this concert and I said to my mum I want to learn the trumpet um, completely out of the blue and normally you know my mum and dad used to call it my seven day wonders because I'd, I'd get this I get this passion for something for about seven days and then I'd bet it would just go off the boil but I, uh, I kept going on about it apparently and it so happened that there was a somebody in my mum's office was selling a trumpet and and it also happened that there was a really good trumpet teacher who lived at the end of my road yeah, who had availability. I'd started playing the trumpet and, and that was it. I was just completely hooked then and kind of obsessed with um, classical music and, and brass music. And, you know, this was in the days of the, the Philip Jones Brass Ensemble. And I remember, you know, buying all the Philip Jones Brass albums. And, and there, there used to be a, I remember there was a, there was a, a record shop in, um, in Croydon called Cloaks. And uh, all downstairs was like sort of pop and rock, and then upstairs was the classical music department. And I remember as a as a teenager, kind of doing the walk of shame up the stairs <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to the, this kind of hallowed, quiet room upstairs where the classical music was. It was a brilliant shop, you know. And uh, I used to so I used to collect all my classical music albums, and I was just totally obsessed with it. And I've been ever since really. So it's uh, yeah, it, it just it just got me, and it it, it, it never let go. You know? Um, those you you may be surprised to know as a violinist as I was that I'm well aware of those Philip Jones brass ensemble um, albums. Uh, I, I don't know why it must be a character trait of mine, but I generally always 
more friends with brass players than string players. And yeah, <laughs> I, I, I loved those albums. Um, yeah, I mean, they were brilliant, you know, obviously brilliant players, you know, people like, well, I mean, Philip Jones himself uh, was, was the least least of them in a way, you know, because it was yeah. like Michael Laird and, and James Watson and, um, you know, Ray Premier and John Iveson, you know, and John Fletcher on tuba, wonderful players. But also, you know, it was in the days where, you know, Elgar Howarth, as he is now, Harry Howarth back then was still playing trumpet, and he era. I mean, there's a fantastic arrangement of pictures at an exhibition for large brass ensemble, and, it, and it's genius. You know, I mean, it, it is. Yeah. You know, right, right up there with Ravel, in my opinion. It's so clever. You know, it it's, it became like a stall of the of the, the you know brass ensemble repertoire. And, it's fabulous. So yeah, you know, I was I was really hooked. I have to say, and I, you know, they used to do quite a lot of concerts, and I used to go and see them at the festival hall. And um, yeah, it just became a complete, you know, gospel music nut, really. And were you playing in youth orchestras uh, as well as brass ensembles and, and wind groups? And yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it was back in this. So this was back in the seventies, and um, Croydon then had a fantastic uh, music service. You know, so there was. You know, there was a there was a, a concert uh, wind band which was was run by a guy called David Kendall, who was um, very influential in the kind of the wind ensemble movement. Um, uh, he's, he's, uh, he formed this uh, society called Basway, which is like British Society of Wind Ensembles or something. Anyway, so we were we were playing at the school's prom with this, and we were playing quite avant-garde music. Um, and then there was a there was a youth orchestra on a Saturday morning, uh, and then chamber orchestra uh, chamber ensembles after that. And then Sunday morning there was another youth orchestra uh, conducted by Arthur Davison, the aforementioned. So yeah, there was so much music going on in Croydon, and it was all free. And um, sadly, it's all gone. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, those were the days when free music education, and yeah, exactly. I started in the northeast of England in in Cleveland, and it was free. I had free violin lessons. Um, yeah. Uh, came south to Kent and I was paying for violin lessons, but I wasn't paying for ensembles on a Saturday morning and things like that. And yeah, it's it's all it's all disappearing gradually. Um, it, very sad. It is really sad, you know. You think that, and there was so much, you know. It was because, you know, it 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 attracted, you know, uh, children and young people from all different backgrounds as well. Whereas now it's, you know, it's increasingly becoming white and middle class again. You know. Yeah. It, it's really sad, you know, because because uh, it, it was such a gift and, and it was such a precious thing that we had. And, and unfortunately, politically, we've allowed it all to go. And it, it, it's a tragedy. I really think it is a tragedy. Yeah, I agree. Um, mm. On to music college, I think. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So I yeah, I was, uh, you know, pretty serious trumpet player and, and Fairly decent. I got. Uh, I went to a London College of Music and studied there for four years with um, Dennis Egan, who was a fantastic old boy who used to be um, principal trumpet of the English National Opera back in the day. And he played. He was quite. He was quite elderly by the time uh, he taught me, but he he, he was a um, fascinating guy. He, he he'd been in the uh, the LPO with um, Sir Malcolm Arnold during the war. Oh wow. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and he used to, you know, lots of tales from the trenches and, you know, he worked on some of the Beatles recordings, which he, he hated, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a little bit hilarious. And he, he was such a brilliant um, musician, you know, really. Fair. And then I was also taught by um, Paul Kosh, who was uh, in the BBC Symphony Orchestra at the time. So, it was, yeah, it was really great. And, you know, I, to be honest, I, I thought that's what I was going to be. I was going to be a trumpet player. I was, I was, you know, I wasn't bad. I wasn't. I wasn't a superstar, but I, I was pretty good. And I thought, you know, that, that that's what I want to do. Yeah. Up to this point, the magic word of conducting has not appeared yet in our chat. Uh, and when I do my homework, I look people up on their websites or on Wikipedia. Uh, and in your Wikipedia entry, it says that your career morphed into arranging, conducting and composing. So was, yes. it, was it during your time at college or after that, the, that your your career suddenly took a... Uh, right or left turn away from where you thought it was going to be. Yeah, move to the dark side, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or the light. Well, um, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the morphing. Um, yeah. You would, yeah, I didn't really do much. I did a little bit of conducting at college, but n n nothing orchestral really, just small on, you know, brass ensembles, things like that. But I, I didn't really think it was anything particular for me. And I, I just thought I was going to be a trumpet player. 
background. I, I left college and I started freelancing and was, um, did some tours and you know even worked on a cruise ship for a little bit, um, which was great fun. Um, and uh, I um, did a lot of teaching, uh, instrumental teaching in various schools. And then um, a colleague of mine um, from music college had started working. He was much more, he, he studied um, composition at, at, at college and he had started working for um, an arranger and um, producer and um, orchestrator called Christopher Palmer, who um, is, is not hugely well known now, but, but, but back then he was, he was very influential um, and he'd worked as an orchestrator, he worked with people like Maurice Jarre and Dietrich Jomkin and Miklos Rozier um, and George Fenton latterly. Um, and he also was he'd written books about the, the golden age of Hollywood. And um, anyway, the long story short, I, I started working for him as an assistant. Um, and this was back, this was before um, computer programs for, for music notation. Uh, right. yeah. it, so this would have been uh, late, late eighties, early nineties, yeah. And um, yeah, the, the, I mean, the, the music notation programs had just come in, but they were so slow. I mean, I do, I do remember um, buying a computer, and I'd never used a computer before because I, I wasn't, you know, at school like the, the computer club where the, you know, the people who never never saw daylight. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, yes. And, and couldn't couldn't look you in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pa pasty skinned figures who you know sort of lived in dark rooms, staring at screens of of green type. Um, green, <laughs> it, was green, it was all green, wasn't it? Uh, where, I mean, yeah. Yeah, my first computer was a green screen, Amstrad green screen. Absolutely, um, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. You'd sort of spend hours putting code in to make a little piece of you know uh, make the That's computer. Right. And, and, you know, and you had to code yourself, you know, but I, I remember fin Finale, uh, which is a, a notation software program, had just come out uh, for Macintosh computers. Um, and so I bought one. And I, I always tell this story, it's like, you know, if I'm doing, um, uh, you know, work in education, like going into the music colleges or something, and people never believe me, but I, I actually did, a, they, they, they had a, such a thing, because it was so new, they did a mouse tutorial, where you basically had to follow <laughs> this little dot around the screen to learn how to use a mouse and I actually did the mouse tutorials. <laughs> yeah, but you know uh, us of a certain age I think we're simply five or six years between us you know that these things had to be learned you know that um, yeah absolutely. It, it was all brand new to I remember playing with that that uh, software finale because I was a first study joint first study composer and violin uh, then went into the profession and joined the CBSA but I'm still interested in in some of the things I'd written, and I remember getting hold of a copy of Finale from somewhere, and yeah. just spending hours over a couple of bars to try and make it look good. It wasn't very intuitive. I mean, it was very you know, if you if you could spend the the, the time doing it, it could eventually look good. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, I, I, in the end, I thought, you know what, I'd probably be quicker if I had just actually just learned to write music really, really clearly. Um, and neatly. Well, that well, that was it. I mean, it was so slow. I remember, like you know, a, a screen redraw. So if you click the you know next page, it used to take about two minutes to re redraw the thing. So it was virtually unusable. So yeah, we did everything pencil and paper. And yeah. Chris Palmer was was working on big projects. Like he put, he was a really fascinating guy. So I learned so much from him. Um, and he was putting together projects like uh, he reconstructed all William Walton's film music. Right. Um, so he and but he put the whole thing together. He liaised with the um, the Walton estate and uh, Lady Walton, because you know, obviously William Walton was uh, deceased by then. Um, and he put together uh, a recording contract with Shandos Records, and he got Oxford University Press to publish it as well. So, you know, he pulled all these things together. It was fascinating. And he reconstructed all this music, put them into suites, and then he got people like Sir John Gilgood to come down and do some of the soliloquies and uh, Christopher Plummer. And it mm. and, and had Nev Mariner in the Academy and Sonata in the Field. So um, very quickly from the kind of trumpet playing that I was doing to hanging out at recording sessions with Sir Neville Mariner and Sir John Gilgood, you know, the, I, the, the morphing happened, if you like. And, yeah. um, and I started doing some arranging as well. At the same time, I, I started getting 
um, pop, some pop arranging. And I just suddenly found that I was a much better arranger than I was a trumpet player. So uh, I kind of looked myself, looked in the mirror and just thought, okay, you know, there's, these chances don't come around every day. And, and I sort of hung up, hung up the trumpet and um, sort of jumped into um, working as a copyist and an arranger and an orchestrator. And I'm guessing that at some point now you've hung your trumpet up and you're mm. uh, do in this this um, line of work. At some point, it's become obvious to you that if you want the best version of your arrangements or your um, compositions or whatever you're doing in in the sessions, it would be a good idea for you to learn to conduct it. Um, so, did you at any stage have any lessons, or did you just? go with what you what you'd seen as a trumpet player in previous days mm. um initially uh, i i didn't have any lessons uh, and, and like you say you know it, it's um uh, as i started doing the pop arranging i mean really it, there was kind of no alternative you know normally the record producers you're working with didn't know one end of an orchestra from another um yeah. I, I'd done the arrangements and, and it was like, well, you might as well stand up there and conduct it, you know, so I really learned on the job, you know, and I remember, I still remember the, um, the, the kind of first real um, orchestral uh, session I did. Um, and it was with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra at Air Studios in, in the big hall at Air Studios. And I can still, even now, I still get a slight flutter in my tummy when I when I walk into the studio because I smell the floor polish, and it just reminds me of the abject terror, <laughs> you know, standing in front of this orchestra. And, and back then, orchestras weren't quite as friendly as they are now, you know. It was um, so yeah, that was it was fairly terrifying. But I, uh, you know, I kept my head down and kept the beat going, and it was all to click track anyway, so I couldn't do too much damage. And and then really, you just learnt on the job you know you had to I think you know you'll be able to tell this more than anybody you know somebody who studied as a violinist and then and then moved into conducting you have you kind of have to earn your spurs and, and uh, it, it is scary and I it, even the, the, the worst ones were actually where it was the, the session orchestras there was a terrifying uh, leader first violinist who, who was a pop guy mainly uh, I'll spare his blushes but um, he, <laughs> he he was fairly notorious at sort of hazing new recruits you know and he gave me a terrible time for about the first year in the studio um, but then gradually you know you, I he was right in a way I didn't didn't know my job and I I, I learned it as, as I went and and I had to earn his respect and you know by by after a year or two, we, we became firm friends, and it, it, it was fine. But it, yeah, it was a fairly terrifying way to to get into the profession and, and uh, as a conductor. And I, and I I didn't have any lessons. You know, I, I bought a few books and seen some online uh, video tutorials and stuff. And then I then I went and had a few lessons um, with uh, again the teacher shall remain nameless, but he just seemed outraged that I was getting more work than he was <laughs> so, so however crap I was this guy was just like deeply bitter that I was getting more work than he was so I, I, I kind of didn't really pursue that and I, I haven't had a lesson since I, I'm ashamed to say so well I mean you know over 200 films and and all sorts of concerts and whatever else you know I'm mm. sure at this point now you don't you know you don't need those lessons um and but it sounds like a daunting, frightening, yeah. And I do feel for you because you know I did much the same. Uh, you just stand in front of an orchestra for the first time, professional orchestra for the first time, and and away you go. And yeah, you, yeah, it's it is a feeling. It's a fluttering in the pit of my stomach whenever I think back to that those early experiences. Um, yeah, and, actually, and actually, it's still there every time I meet a new orchestra, frankly. But then, yes, yes. Yeah, it's it's something about you know, and you know that I mean, as a as a player, as you're sitting, you know, looking at the conductor, it's just a different thing, isn't it? Yeah. Sitting in that body of people, you know, there's there's a safety there, um, uh, and and also, you know, you know that there's 
some members of the orchestra just have a kind of irrational hatred of whoever stands on the podium, however good you are. Absolutely and, true. And you have to learn to develop this thick skin, but not everybody's going to like you. You know, you yeah. hope that they'll all respect you, but um, you know, don't expect don't expect smiles and hugs from everybody because it's just not going to happen. You know, and that was a that was a lesson learned. You know, being a being a part of a brass section that's all fairly matey, and you know, you play a good solo and everybody shuffles their feet and all this sort of stuff. To actually standing there, and it, I'm sure you know very well, Mike. It, it can be quite lonely. You know. Mm. I'm looking forward to the next couple of questions because they're subjects that I haven't touched on on the podcast before. And frankly, I'm interested in because I don't know an awful lot about it either. Uh, and I find every aspect of conducting interesting. The first thing I'm gonna ask is, can you let us all know whether there is a fundamental difference between working in the studio, and I'm gonna stay in the studio for now, working in the studio with an orchestra, let's say, as you mentioned, the, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, is there a difference between working with them and with what you would call in inverted commas a session orchestra which is basically a pickup scratch orchestra free all freelancers booked because they're the best of the best um what do you find are the differences if there are any at all in those two scenarios um there used to be more i'd say i, I think increasingly you know especially as as the kind of economic climate for everybody in the arts is getting tougher and tougher i'm finding that the you know the name orchestras are becoming more and more friendly in in the studio mm. than they used to be but th there is a you know there's inevitably there's it's a little more cliquey the the name orchestras yeah. you know you've got because you spend so much time together there's all this sort of you know various factions and you know the Brass aren't getting along with the woodwinds at the moment because you know they somebody was sick on somebody's shoes on the last tour or something. You know, <laughs> it's it's just all this stuff that you, you you know there's so much politics involved and personal politics. Whereas you you just don't see that in a session orchestra because they're all you know it's the creme de la creme. They're all um, drawn from all the orchestras and you know the west end and and opera houses and, and that you know and it's you, you do look around some of these sessions um a few months ago i was i was conducting the, the the new bomb movie and you know i looked at the we had eight horns and every wow. single horn player was a was a principal horn player oh, um, wow. Wow. and and the sound is just extraordinary you know because you've got eight superstar players and with the best will in the world from a, a name orchestra you just don't get that sound you know oh. it's 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 such an adrenaline rush when you hear a, a session orchestra and and they are so good i mean i you know see i work on arrangements and stuff for a, a movie and occasionally you get something that's really tricky and you you put it in front of them and you see them come in like you know 20 minutes before the session starts and they just open the pad of music you know and um, for, for people who, who don't know this, but you know, I'm, I'm sure most do. But you know, session orchestras see music beforehand. It's all sight reading, yeah. um, and so there's a whole pad full of music that they're going to play that day that they've never seen before. And they just they rifle through the pad and they look at it, and they very rarely will sit down and, and um, practice anything because they just oh, it's within my safety zone, you know, and my yeah. comfort zone. Um, so it, I mean, it's a great privilege and I have to pinch myself, you know, you can work with these extraordinary players, you know, and I, I remember the first time it really hit home to me was when I was doing a session and Maurice Murphy, a great LSO principal trumpet player was on first, on the first trumpet chair and he'd been a total hero of mine as, as a trumpet player. And, um, you know, I got, I got to, to, to conduct Maurice Murphy and that was, that was a really special moment. Um, Interesting you mentioned Morris Murphy because a question just popped into my head that I know, for instance, or anecdotally I've been told that, for instance, the solos in Cliffhanger, the film, um, were written specifically for him. When yeah. you do some arranging or uh, you're, uh, it's music that you're not just conducting, it's music you've arranged or been involved with, do you ever get the chance to say to the whoever's fixing the orchestra, I'd like such and such on the first trumpet, uh, this solo was written for such and such on first horn. Um, do you have that sort of control because it's a, a freelance orchestra? Absolutely, do yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I I've got principal players that I really like, and 
you know, for instance, for the, um, the, the latest Bond movie, you know, they asked me, uh, all the principal players, and they said, who do you want on lead trumpet? You know, it's, it's quite an important part in the Bond movies where you need, you have some classical players, but you also need a, a jazz player who can play the extreme high stuff without yeah. resorting to like a, a D trumpet or a piccolo trumpet, which is the wrong sound. You know? yeah, so I said, you know, I, I wanted Mike Lovett, who's, you know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the best lead players in Europe, if not the world at the moment. Absolutely. So. Um, well, I mean, I, I have to tell a story about Mike Lovett. I did some work at Cheatham School in Manchester and we did two concerts. One was the Firebird and the Ravel Piano Concerto in G and the other one was film music. And Mike had been booked to come up and, and sort of spend the afternoon uh, the day before the concert doing some teaching and some masterclasses. And then the last rehearsal of the day, Mike was going to come and sit in because he was going to play in the concert the next day. So he was going to come in and sit in the rehearsal. Anyway, yeah. most of these kids, and they were most of them were under 16, were oblivious to him being there. Obviously, the brass knew. Um, yeah. And I decided we'd start with the James Bond thing. Right. The David Arnold one from Casino Royale. Yeah. And when we got to the first time the tune happened, all of the brass kids just stopped and started smiling because um, Mike was playing this tune so amazingly. And mm. all the violas and cellos and basses all turned their heads to the right to see what was going on because they'd never <laughs> heard a sound like this. Yeah. When, yeah. when he went up the octave in the next phrase, the yeah. entire orchestra stopped, almost stopped playing because they'd never heard anything like it. You can imagine being a 16-year-old kid and on stage with Mike Lovett, and he goes up the octave in the James Bond thing. The whole place just stopped. They were, what on earth is that? And um, it, it was just awesome. It was, you know, if, if I could have played eight bars of music to a room full of 16-year-old kids and said, you know, here is a thing that's going to inspire you probably for the rest of your life. It couldn't, he couldn't have done it better. And, and he was so lovely the whole two days he was there. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd never forget the look on their faces when he went, <laughs> went up the octave on the da 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 da. It was just extraordinary. Oh, he's he's, he's an extraordinary player. I, I mean, uh, we um, I worked on, I did all the arrangements for the the, the film Judy, and um, I got to um, record all all the uh, all the arrangements as well. And um, I handpicked this big band, and we had like fantastic players. And Mike was playing lead on that. And I'd written, I had, I, I wrote some music for it as well, some kind of big band filler stuff for when it was, it's all set in a, in the Talk of the Town nightclub, and we needed some extra stuff. So um, uh, I, I wrote some music, and I wrote this kind of big big band piece. And there was a really high trumpet bit at the end, like whizzing around up to about a top F or something. And we played it once through, and he said, um, "Oh, do you want that?" up the octave and I went it's already on the top F and he goes oh, I'll give it a go and he <laughs> played this thing first take and it, it's on the recording and it's amazing you know and it's yeah. like everybody started applauding you know so he, he has that effect on seasoned pros as well he's, he's, yeah. he's, he's quite amazing and you know I have a funny story I am um, I, he was at he was at music college at the same time. He was at Trinity College and I was at London College. And I actually remember playing a show with him, the Horns, Hornsey Operatic and Dramatic Society, playing, <laughs> <laughs> playing Man of La Mancha. And he was doing second trumpet and I was doing third trumpet. So there you go. But he was pretty good even then. <laughs> um, going back to James Bond, I can use that as an example now of what you have to do as a conductor when you're conducting sessions for film. Um, I've done one concert which was a live orchestra to film which was north by northwest the bernard herman score yeah, and when i was conducting that score i would have a time clock on my own tv screen in the top right hand corner which was giving me the bar and each of the beats and then uh, occasionally um a vertical line would go from left to right across the screen i think it was green uh, which meant that when it hit the right-hand end of the screen, you had to hit a specific bar line. If there were tempo changes, there were white flashing discs in the middle to give you the new tempo. And then at the end of each number, uh, a red vertical line would go across left to right, and, it, and you had to stop when the red line hit the right-hand side of the screen. Um, is it the same when you come to do the music to put it on the film for the first time, or is it a completely different system? Because I don't know, and I'm really interested. Yeah, um, well, that that system, it, it, it originally it started out in the States. It was called Oracle, 
uh, and we've used it here as well. And they, normally they, they call it pops and streamers, and it's done digitally now. But in the old days, you literally used to, you know, score a hole or or draw on onto onto the actual film yeah. know, to create to create the effect. It's pretty rare. I mean, certainly in London studios, we, we never use it. Uh, it's still it's still used a little bit in LA. Um, uh, but to be honest, you don't really need it in the recording studio because you have normally in front of me. So you have a click track. Um, then I also have I uh, have what the the Pro Tools screen, which is the hard disk recording system that they use, and I'll have the bars and the beats counter in, in on on the screen in front of me. Mm. Um, and so you, I, I I don't ever ask for it because I just think it's it's overkill. You know, I've got the score, I've got click tracks, and I've got a bars and beats counter if I need it as well yeah um, so we it, we don't tend to use it in, in things but for doing live um, film live you know so orchestra live to, to picture live then then I certainly do do it and yeah. uh, you know then it's a very handy way of, of, of making sure you're in sync and um, yeah it's but, the, I, I mean I found that more often than not that the, the streamers were all of all which are the vertical lines yeah. Uh, um, only really confirmed. I wasn't waiting for them, or I wasn't using them. No. They only really confirmed that I was in the right place. Um, no, I mean, really, the only use of it is if if you don't have a click track and you're you're then it then it kind of yeah. can keep you in in time uh, and you know their reference points. And John Williams uses them when he's conducting his Star Wars scores because he doesn't use click tracks. Right. So then he so then he has streamers and pops to make sure he hits the right place. So if he's a bit behind on tempo, then he will speed up a bit. Um, that's fine if you're John Williams. The problem with that is most people tend to record with click track because it means that you, if you want to redo the or overdub a little section of it, it's not going to be the exact same tempo. So mm. it's another complete recording. Um, yeah. When you're on, you know, a million a, a million dollars a movie, it doesn't matter so much. And he, he records two or three minutes in a recording session, where most mortals are, are recording fifteen or twenty minutes in a, in a, in a three-hour recording session. So it's slightly different. But it, yeah, I, I never use it in the recording studio. But but for live doing, you know, film film concerts to, to picture, certainly, yeah. Well, um, what's interesting about what I did and leading on to my, my next question for you is because uh, North by Northwest was done in the late 50s, very early 60s, I can't quite remember, but it was recorded without click track. So there was no click track. Um, there were times when I was doing the performances of that when I knew I, I had, I knew it was okay to be a bar ahead on the count because in on the original they sped up and they'd catch me up again. Um, it's, I was always playing these mental games. So there, yes. wasn't, there was no click track. But yes. to those uninitiated people, a click track is is you're wearing headphones and in your ear you hear, and you're yes. conducting along to this. Yeah, and is all the it? all the orchestra are wearing headphones too, so they all yeah. have the same. The same they, yeah, they've got it as well, and that's yeah. paramount that they that they all have it. Uh, I did one session once, and it was the first time I'd ever used click track. Is it a different discipline because you know that, for instance? the rigidity of your beat is is less important because they've all yeah. got it in their ears is it a different sort of discipline when you come to yeah. conduct a click track yeah you, you you i think you're a lot crisper and you're a lot, lot less flowery and i've had um session musicians saying they hate being conducted by a concert conductor because he said they, he said he kept lunging at me <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it, but it's just, it's the, the beat has to be quite crisp because you know orchestras play you know at, at different parts in the beat you know you go i mean i, I remember working once doing a, a recording session with the vienna philharmonic and watching their conductor and it was terrifying you know there was about two seconds behind the beat you know which is um which with a click tracking is um yeah it, that can't happen so yeah the recording orchestras uh, are very used to playing on, on the bleeding edge of the click, you know. Um, and, you know, then sometimes if we want, if there's a little kind of rallentando at the end of something and it's not particularly picture specific, then we'll we'll take away, take the click track out. So we'll say, you know, bar 82, we'll take the click track out and just follow me, I'll, I'll do the rallentando. Yeah. Uh, just because it feels slightly more natural. And, mm -hmm. and that's the hardest thing. Big tempo changes are, are hard to do on a click track. 
whereas you know it's something that naturally you just do as, as a performance you know i mean i remember <laughs> my worst experience of it was um when we recorded uh, black swan so I, I did all the adaptions and arrangements uh to black swan you know which was based obviously on on swan lake the tchaikovsky yeah. and clint mansell did the original score um but i basically had to click impose a click track on this um very russian um version of, of um the tchaikovsky ballet they'd used it's from from the kirov or the Bolshoi, and you know russian tempos it was all over the place um but, but they'd shot the movie to this and, and and all the all the you know the ballet choreography had been done to this particular recording and then we had to recreate this recording because we were adapting it and moving it around and also then you know the film company had copyright of the recording so uh, we had i had to recreate all these tempos so i nearly went mad i spent a month kind of imposing a click track to these crazy tempos <laughs> on black film. but uh, yeah so it's um yeah it's a very different beast but um you know the technology of recording quite often what we'll do is if the, if there's a tempo change we'll say you know it normally happens on, on a double bar say we'll record up to that tempo change and then stop and then we'll give them new clicks in at the new tempo into the next section so that you know if there's a sudden tempo change and it's bump it up 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 um but previously they've been going it's really hard to get that completely together you know and 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 you know for for a a symphony orchestra or an opera orchestra it doesn't you know the orchestra is never quite together you know if you listen forensically you can hear that there's a slight time lag between the, the players but that's part of the performance but the problem with film music is it you know it's something that that's heard over and over and over again and it's also hitting certain marks it has to be together so yeah. we we use the technology to um you know give us a, a run up at the new tempo so we set new clicks and then we we'll stop to that point and that's you know one of the major things i i do as a, as a session conductor really is seeing how to break up break down the score in the most efficient way possible to get it recorded so but also talking about efficiency uh, i'm assuming you you're also involved in what's recorded in each session so you don't have eight horns sitting through every session that they only come to two of the six sessions or three of the nine sessions um yeah, and then one yeah. of them might be harp and piano only or something correct yeah so i mean it, it it depends how the composers like to work so generally we we we'd break up a score so if i'm orchestrating it i'd say okay we've got like a an a orchestra which is our full orchestra so we might have you know the, the luxury of 50 or 60 strings and then a big brass section and big wind and and we might do it all in the room together or if you're somebody like Hans Zimmer he likes to record things separately so he'll do we'll do two recording sessions with the strings and woodwind and then on the in the evening the third session will be brass only so they're basically overdubbing what's been pre-recorded I don't know how I'm going to edit that out. That was two books falling off my bookshelf, landing on my, my daughter's drum kit behind me. <laughs> that, 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 that was the definition of brunch. It was. <laughs> oh dear. I might leave that in actually. <laughs> That's very good. I see also uh, that you've conducted, and I think I played for you when I was in the CBSA, you've conducted all around the country and uh, in many places abroad, guest conducting and on the concert stage. Um, yes. Do you enjoy that as a, is it a diversion? Do you, I mean, what percentage would you say you did between session and studio time and uh, live in concert time? Oh, I'd say probably 95% is in the studio. Yeah. So, so it, yeah, it's very much a diversion. I, I, I really enjoy it. I mean, you know, there's nothing that beats having a, a an audience there rather than just the, you know, mm. just the studio. But um, um, I don't do it an awful lot. And you know, I, the, the stuff I do is film music concerts, normally of stuff that I've had something to do with. You know, so I've I've conducted a lot of um, Indian composer A. R. Rahman. Yes, yeah. So yeah. Um, in, fact, in fact, that may have been when I played for you because I'm, I'm sure. Not, I'm sure it was. Yeah. I know we did a concert in Birmingham with his music. Yeah, we've done it. We've done it. We, we did it with the CBSO, and uh, you know, obviously, he's a superstar in India, which 
um, it's kind of a strange thing for a, a Western film composer to think they're a superstar, but he, he's like kind of Elvis in, in, in India because they, besides the, the underscore, they, they, they don't particularly have a pop industry in India. So, and every, every like a, a Bollywood movie or, or a, a, a Tollywood, which is the Tamil um, mm. movie industry, every every movie pretty much has seven songs in it whatever it is i mean it's 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 amazing it's 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 funny too but it's i remember doing a sci-fi movie called robots which was a huge big hit in uh india massive massive movie and you know it's a big sci-fi movie incredible cgi with a lot of the hollywood cgi is done in india anyway in, in bangalore um and the yeah despite all this sci-fi stuff going on it kind of stops and there's suddenly there's a there's a kind of a love a love song and there you know there, there's lots of kind of white silk and chiffon blowing on a beach and then you get and, th and then you go back to the sci-fi again it, yeah. it's so because of that um uh he his music is also in, in in the charts it's basically pop music so he's a he's like a pop star besides being this very accomplished um orchestra musician as well I and mean, he's he's I don't bandy the word around, really, but uh, he's the closest I've ever come to working with a genius. I mean, I've stood over his shoulder while he's writing, and it, uh, I, you know, it, it's just this flurry of activity. He, he, he really is a, a, a very brilliant musician. So, so yeah, so I've, I've, I've conducted a lot of live concerts of his music, and you know, that's when I got to conduct at the Hollywood Bowl, which was fabulous, and we took a German orchestra around India performing his music, which was amazing too. So um, yeah, it's it, it it's been it's it's a great. I, I love doing it, and I, I'd love to do more of it. But you know, nobody's going to ring me up to to conduct Marla Five. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm very I'm very um, honest about that fact. You know, I, I'd love I'd love to conduct Marla Five, but um, it, it's not going to happen. So, but there um, there are you know there are hundreds of conductors who nobody should should ever ring up to conduct a film session either. Um, you know, and that's. That's the point, isn't it? Is that what you do, you do so well and people you're in such demand that you probably will end up spending 95% of the time doing it. Um, yeah, and, and you know, the, 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 the thing to remember about a film session is it's not, it's not just about the music. There's a whole, it's like, uh, I always try and just, I try to describe it like three-dimensional chess. There's a whole other game going on yeah. behind, behind the glass in the recording booth. You know, you're, you're, you've got a composer. Normally, the composer will be in the booth with the director, and there'll be producers, and then some of the film stars might come down. And there's a whole circus going on in the booth, and there's all sorts of political dynamics going on there too. So the music side of it is only one part of the jigsaw, and you you have to be kind of a politician and a diplomat, and um, uh, you know, you have to be very aware when when there's certain cues that are, are problematic for the composer and they've never quite got them signed off with the director and they might kind of be hiding it just before lunch or something where the <laughs> director's, gone off, director's gone off early to take a conference call or something, you know. So there's all these sort of dynamics at play that you really have to be aware of. And, you know, a lot of the, the musicians in the room, you know, they don't really get that. And so you, you're always fielding things and, you know, I, I they'll the booth will talk to me that the orchestra won't hear in my ear and they might be saying things fairly fairly you know direct that you can't yeah. say to an orchestra without without losing their their goodwill and and, and their cooperation so it's um yeah, it's 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 a real kind of uh political thing and you really have to be able to read the room or the rooms very well and and I, it there's certainly no place for an ego you know it's not it's never about me as as the conductor i'm i'm just a a cog in the, in the wheel really and so if you spend 95 percent of your time in the studio as opposed to on the concert platform how does how is that your 95 percent broken up between conducting and learning to conduct the scores arranging and composition yeah I've, yeah it's a real kind of mixture of things that i do and, and it's it's funny it, not all of this kind of just evolved I, i've never been one of these per persons who uh, like had this incredible game plan for my career you know and I, yeah. I go I go into music colleges and film schools and you get these very intense normally young men I have to say <laughs> who've got their, they've got their whole profession planned out and their whole career planned out and I think it's not going to work like that you know no. it never works like that no, so um, so yeah I you know some there'll be there'll be times when I'm doing more arranging than conducting um generally 
if it's a big film, I'll be uh, doing the arrangements and orchestrations for two or three weeks before the recording sessions. And then quite often I'll, I'll be then asked to conduct those sessions as well. Um, and if I've, if I've done the, the arrangements, then that makes the process so much quicker because, you know, I know where all the, all the bodies are buried and I know the choices I've made. And, yeah. you know, very often actually in the film session world, the, the, the session conductor is an orchestrator because if you need to make a quick fix, you just do it over the stand and you use your orchestrational yes. skills. You go, okay, well, let's, let's mute the, let's mute the brass there or, you know, let's, let's double up that, that violin melody on, on the violas to give us a bit more oomph or let's just have uh, first desk players for the strings on this delicate bit or, you know, we, it, it, it's little things, but it's knowing how quickly to, um, work with the, the timbres and the textures of the orchestra and make very quick fixes and you know particularly on a big recording session for a big film time is money you know you're you're in a three-hour session you're burning through thousands and thousands of pounds of money and you know there's not time to go away and have a little ponder about it you've got to do the fix there and then when you are preparing a score for a session, whether it be one that you've arranged or composed, or whether it be one, uh, uh, you know, a, comp a, a different composer's score, do you have a, a, a way of learning? If, if I'm coming in to conduct on, on a session that I haven't worked on the music, so for instance, the Bond movie that I've just mm. done, um, I arranged or co-arranged the, the title song with Hans Zimmer, but I, didn't, I wasn't actually involved in the rest of the score. So I came in and, and conducted it. And all, all of that was, I didn't see any of the scores beforehand. That was all sight reading. Um, wow. So, so I don't have the time to kind of mark things up with nice blue pens and red pens and, and, and all that. <laughs> I just get a, red, I get a red pen and I very quickly, as I, you know, almost as they're, they're booting up the Pro Tools session, I circle any tempo changes, I circle any little solo moments, I circle groups of instruments and then, inevitably we'll play it three or four times and I might make a few more markings but it's mm. it's pretty seat of the pants stuff you know and I, I, I actually credit my uh, trumpet playing um, early career as, as being uh, as helping with my sight reading you know I've always been a brilliant sight reader and as a trumpet player orchestral trumpet player you have to sight read and transpose at the same time yeah. if you're if you're playing a, a Wagner opera you know you might be trumpet in E or trumpet in F or E flat, you know, so trumpet in E, you know, you, you learn to sight read uh, up an augmented fourth. So once you, once you can do that, I, I, I find sight reading the score, you know, and, and film music generally is, is not massively complicated. You know, there'll, there'll be tricky time signatures and, and stuff. So then I'll go through it and I'll quickly ask, okay, what's the click doing in these part, in these five or whatever, you know? Um, and so we'll, we'll you know, I'll, I'll go through go, go through things like that. But um, yeah, generally it's just like, you know, and it's a, it's a pen rather than a pencil as well, because, you know, these scores, they're, they're pulped when we finish really. And <laughs> so it's, it's all fairly brutal, you know, but um, if I'm doing an orchestral concert and things, I, I, I'll treat them with, with a bit more respect and then, I, and then I'll have more of a system akin to, you know, ones that you've described in your previous podcast. Yeah, but uh, yeah. yeah, for, but this, for, for when we're, you know, when I'm sight reading this stuff, it's just quickly circling the bits that I think are important bits. And the players, you know, they, they've, they've got the click track. They're, they're very experienced players. And you'll, there'll be certain players who will always look up before a solo. And there'll be others that, you know, they can see you, but you never see their, their eyes, you know. And yeah. I'm sure that's the same in the concert hall as well. There'll be players who like to have, like to have the, the nod and, and there'll be other players that you, you know you never see their eyes until to the bar afterwards but, that's um, very very true um one of my old colleagues in in the cbso i used to look up before he had a solo or something important to play and he'd just nod at me and said so right I, you know i know you can go away now you know I, i'm not going to get it wrong whereas yeah. there is another person who <laughs> to remain uh, nameless who in all of the times i've conducted them has never looked at me once yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that they're not looking at me directly. Oh, no. I just haven't seen the whites of their eyes. Exactly. Um, yeah, you know that you know, they're, they're picking you up in the peripheral vision, but they're, hmm. they're never going to give you a little, a little smile or a wink or something. No, exactly. Matt, it's ten questions time, and. 
what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Okay. Um, all right, this is a uh, sound I love yeah. uh, is the sound of a Formula One car. Oh, wow. Um, but not the modern hybrids, the old V8s. And um, I remember taking, when my son was quite young, or my, my eldest son was quite young, I remember we went to do Silverstone um, to see Lewis Hamilton, who was his hero and my hero. And we were driving towards Silverstone and there's always a big queue to get into the racetrack. And we had the windows down in the car and you could just hear the form, the, the, the engine, you know, the engines going around the circuit. And we were probably two miles away and it's just that sound is just magical. Yeah, I'm a total F1 nut. So the, the sound of a, an old F1 engine, I, I just adore. And the sound you hate? Sound I hate. This is, this is an odd one. Um, it's the sound of an old ticking clock in, in, a, in a slightly empty room. It reminds me of my mum used to have an old um, friend who she'd known donkey's years who lived in, in Hampstead. And we used to go over there some, sometimes on a Sunday. And there was this big old house with big dark wood and there was just this big grandfather clock in the corner just ticking away on a Sunday and I, I wanted to be outside playing football or doing anything else and I knew I was going back to school the next day and it was I don't know every time I hear that sound it really depresses me so. <laughs> <laughs> it's the sound of a ticking clock I just can't bear it <laughs> if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing um 24 hours free um I guess just being somewhere by the sea with, I don't know, family and friends and nice, nice wine, nice food, and just, you know, kicking back, having a swim in the sea, all that kind of stuff, you know, just chilling out by the sea with a nice sea breeze, that would be perfect. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Um, I, I loved, I remember um, Klaus Tenstedt, uh, when he was, he was with, uh, conducting the, the LPO, and he did a fantastic Mahler uh, cycle. And I remember seeing them at the proms or the festival hall, and um, Laurie Evans was the principal trumpet back then. So this must have been when I was at college and fairly obsessed with trumpets. And uh, yeah, I just remember just thinking he's Marlers, and I still I have all the recordings, and they're still my favourite Marlers. I think Klaus Tenstedt and, and conducting Marler was just sublime. And then I, I really like Matt. I, I, I mean, sad he's just left us, isn't he? But I really love Maris Janssen's as well. Mm. Um, I remember he hearing him conduct the Oslo Phil, and just thinking, you know, for a, a fairly unlauded uh, orchestra I just thought oh what a sound and you know that a lot of that had to be down to him just extraordinary mm. uh, and who would be a favorite current conductor I really like Andrus Nelson's and it's not just because he used to be a trumpet player um, <laughs> well there's, that, not, there's not many ex-trumpet playing conductors um are there but yeah you he, know what I, I come across quite a few oh do you, you? Know? oh okay in, especially in the film world, yeah, there's there's quite yeah. a few, yeah, yeah, um, and um, obviously, you know, your your mate Sir Simon is 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 pretty damn good as well, um, but yeah, I I, I go for Andrew Nelson. He seems to come up with really interesting programs and, and dynamic performances, you know, and, and having um, he's at Boston and the Leipzig Gewand House are pretty decent gigs, aren't they? So he must be doing something right. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Um, physically, I think it was um, Metropolis. Uh, I did a tour uh, playing Metropolis, the, the Fritz Lang, you know, yeah. 1920s movie with the original score by uh, Gottfried Huppets. Um, it's a fabulous score, but it's nearly two hours, 40 minutes long. There's no breaks. Wow. And I did it um, with no clicks, no streamers, nothing. I, I just literally had the score and I used the sync points I used, um, because it's a silent movie, I, I used the, the dialogue cards, uh, right. which, were all in, which were all in German, because I did it with a German orchestra. Um, so I, I used the dialogue cards as my sync points. And that, that technically, that was really hard, because just hitting exactly the right points. And also physically, it was like two and a half hours solid with no break, no interval. Um, my back killed me every night, I remember. <laughs> I was wrenched in sweat. So that was, that was pretty tough physically. Um, I think technically the, the hardest stuff I do is probably um, A.R. Armand's music because um, he, he's got this wonderful thing that the that, that Indian uh, composers have with, whereby, you know, these 
polyrhythms uh, for for us they you know they can be very difficult but for indian composers um you know they learn they learn rhythms almost like they learn scales you know these mm. groups of rhythms and it, it's fascinating but i'm i've you know a few times had had fantastic session orchestras trying to play his stuff um i remember once in in uh, new york and we literally had to record it slower and then they sped it up a little bit because oh, they wow. could, they just couldn't play the rhythms. And there was another time we, we had to do one where we, we just had to move everything on the beat and then they shuffled everything off the beat in Pro Tools to, to fix it. Because it, it just, you know, it was so hard. So that, that technically that was really hard. One other one was um, conducting a ballet actually, which I, I'd never done before. Um, I've done ballet music before, but um, never actually a live ballet. And a, a friend of mine, um, a composer from uh, Norway called uh, Henrik Skran invited me to um, conduct the premiere of his ballet at the Norwegian uh, National Ballet in Oslo, which was a um, fantastic opportunity. And of course, I said yes. But uh, what I hadn't quite realized was how brutal they, um, the, the tempos are, in, in that they hate any variation whatsoever in tempo. And this was, this was, a, this was a three hour ballet. Um, and uh, uh, it just, you know, I, I, rehearsals were were a lesson in. Um, yeah, I was, I was very fearful because I, after every after every rehearsal, I'd get the choreographer coming down and giving me a hard time about. Yeah, this one was five BPM faster than yesterday, and it's like, oh, <laughs> no, and it's like, yeah. And they said, then you sped up. I said, yeah, but it felt good, you know. It's like, but you know, they've got all their steps together, and so it, it was. Um, yeah, it was it was a fantastic experience, but I don't think it's one I'll repeat. It was it was far too terrifying, <laughs> and I have great respect for people like Barry Wordsworth who've done like you know you know acres and acres of ballet, and you think, my goodness, I had no idea quite how brutal it can be. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I'm always working on something else. Um, that's not bragging, that's just how it is. And yeah. so I've always got a, a, a little portable MIDI keyboard with me and a laptop and headphones and, a, and another computer screen. And I set up a little mini studio in my hotel room wherever I am in the world. So uh, if, it's, if it's not the film I'm working on, then I'll be orchestrating another movie at night and then you know, conducting one during the day. So it's just... It's just the way how it works. So I've always got a MIDI keyboard with me. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Um, I think we, we touched on it earlier. And it's 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 the attitude of a of a new orchestra that you haven't worked with before, and that element of you know seeing what you've got. And I, I guess I understand it, but it sometimes it gets a little wearing. You think, really, do I have to jump through these hoops before we can have a nice time and just make music? You know, so. I've had that a few times. I mean, no, nothing on the scale that, that you have, but uh, yeah, especially the session orchestras are so friendly. It, it it comes as a shock to me every now and again. You know, I do know, um, and uh, <laughs> it, it's an answer I agree with. Yeah, if you didn't have to go through that, well, especially the first ten minutes. Or, yeah, it's you know. just so unnecessary. You know, yeah. we're all there to make we're all there to make music. You know, do we really have to unzip ourselves before we do that? You know? Yeah, uh, and, and is there any need for you to be really that nasty? Because I'm with you. I'm here all week. Um, it's, it's just yes. no need for you to be quite so personal and horrible about it. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Um, I mean, yeah. you know, it doesn't happen. It hasn't happened very often to me, but sometimes it can really, really play on your mind for the rest of the time you're there. Yeah, it's just not. It's just not. You know, you're you're there to make music, not to, you know, to have these these silly little games. You know, it's 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 wearing. It's hey ho. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? <laughs> you're going to say you you think I'm going to say Formula One driver, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, only only due to the your answer to question one. But go on. <laughs> No, I, I'd be terrified. I mean, once you go and see a few races up close, you think it's insane. You know, it's good. Yeah. So it's actually, um, I spent quite a lot of time on on film sets as a, you know, if I've been if I'm music director for a, a film or if there's some uh, some live elements of music that that is part of the score that I, I go and supervise. So I've I've spent you know many many days on film sets, and I, I'd like to be a cinematographer. Um, oh, I've always been fascinated by cameras. And I remember even as a, as a kid, my dad made me a little um, cardboard 
uh, like TV camera. I remember having my Blue Peter book of television and I had a cardboard TV camera and I used to sit in the corner of the room filming the TV. So <laughs> it just sounds awfully sad, I know. But uh, so yeah, I, I'm fascinated. I always like, you know, if I'm on a film site, I stand behind the cinematographer and chat to him and, and talk, you know, he talks me through what he's doing. So I, I'd love to be a cinematographer, but, uh, you know, and in a way, it's no big surprise, really. The, the, kind of the cinematographer is, is kind of like the orchestrator of a film set, in a way. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Uh, well, um, I'd have a, a really nice bottle of Barolo. Oh, no, lovely, yeah. And, um, oh, as it's my last meal, I can, I can, we can be naughty, can't we? So I'd have a, a, a beef wellington. Oh, wonderful. Well, beef Wellington and Barolo, that sounds great. Yeah, that sounds like a way to go, doesn't it? It does, yeah, yeah. Matt, what a real pleasure it's been. I've learned things today, um, and I'm hoping everybody else has. It's been wonderful to speak to you, and I hope to uh, catch up with you soon. Thank, yeah, it's been, it's been lovely talking to you, Mike. Thanks so much for asking me. It was a great pleasure. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I have a long and very interesting chat with a conductor who is also a composer and pianist. He has been music director in the United States, United Kingdom, Canada and Luxembourg and is currently principal conductor of the BBC Concert Orchestra. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>